KBTC, a viewer-supported community service of Bates Technical College. From KBTC Public Television Studios in Tacoma, Washington, it's the Northwest Now podcast. Each week, we take a closer look at the people and issues that affect all of us here in Western Washington. So sit back, relax, and join the conversation with your host, Tom Lason. For 36 years, one of this region's most prominent nonprofits involved in the restoration of Puget Sound salmon runs has been restoring habitat, doing research, supporting a hatchery program, and working to bring stakeholders together. The goal is to restore sustainable salmon and steelhead fishing, but the barriers to the salmon's survival are many and persistent. Our Earth Day discussion with Long Live the Kings is next on Northwest Now. Regular viewers of Northwest Now know we've done a lot of work over the years explaining the threats to this region's salmon population and some of the efforts to fix it. One of the most important nonprofits in this effort is a group called Long Live the Kings, which has been working alongside the government, tribes, the scientific community, and fishing interests since 1986. It's safe to say that hundreds of organizations and thousands of people work full-time on fixing this region's salmon problem. Long Live the King's Executive Director Jacques White holds a Ph.D. in the marine sciences with undergrad degrees in both oceanography and zoology. He has a long history publishing in scientific journals and serving as an expert advisor on a wide array of panels and study groups involving the health of Puget Sound. Jacques, thanks so much for coming to Northwest Now. I've told you before we started, I'm going to tell you here publicly as well, you've been on my list for a long time, along with Long Live the Kings as an organization. Um, talk a little bit about what Long Live the Kings is exactly, a little bit about your history, and then I have a harder question for you after that. Sure. So Long Live the Kings is a 36-year-old uh, environmental organization, and we have a dual mission. We're focused on wild salmon and steelhead recovery and sustainable fishing because we feel like just recovering salmon to museum pieces is not real recovery, and that people need to interact with them to feel a connection. So um, we've, we started out uh, with a number of uh, anglers who were really interested in salmon who, and who thought maybe they could rear them in private hatcheries. Um, and they, they actually were successful, surprisingly enough. Um, that evolved into sort of two different um, focuses. One was on re restoring or recovering uh, wild species uh, in nature and using hatcheries as a tool to recover. We called it a salmon emergency room. And the other was to produce fish for harvest without interfering with wild populations and using a new technique. But over time, that's evolved and our organization has gotten in, into a lot bigger kinds of projects. So right now, for example, we just completed uh, a $40 million, 200 researchers, 60 different organizations, international program, looking at why juvenile salmon and steelhead aren't surviving in the Salish Sea. Yeah. And we're also now launching major infrastructure projects, looking at how to help salmon survive at the Hood Canal Bridge, looking at how to help salmon survive through the Lake Washington Ship Canal, and then most recently, looking at ways to improve salmon migration through the I-5 corridor in the, in the Nisqually River Delta. Here's the hard part of that question, I promised you, and I think you touched on a few of them. If I forced you, and I know it's gonna be forcing you because the problems are so interconnected and, and there are so many of them that all relate to salmon recovery. What would you say if, if I forced you to do it, and I want that disclaimer in there, what are the top maybe two or three things Long Live the Kings is focused on right now? 
Yeah, What's that's important? great. I mean, we just, we just did a strategic plan, so that's pretty easy to answer. Um, one is to increase diversity of salmon populations and steelhead to make sure that we have enough life, what we call life history variability. So the salmon come and go from rivers at different times. They come and go from different rivers and that that is maintained so the salmon can adapt to changing conditions. So with climate change, this is becoming increasingly important. Um, the second thing is to try to improve survival of salmon and steelhead in what we call the Salish Sea, Puget Sound and the Strait of Georgia and British Columbia. That has dropped off significantly over the last 35 years, and so identifying ways to do that, and there are a number of ways to do that. Um, I'd say the third thing is to address barriers to migration. Things where we, um, pinch points, where we know that salmon are being affected, whether it's a dam or whether it's a barrier like the floating bridge in Hood Canal, or a barrier like the Ballard Locks. The barriers are pretty easy to see. They're, they're sort of self-evident. The ocean conditions piece though, not only in the Salish Sea, but even further out into the, into the Bering Sea, um, you know, we can do all the habitat restoration in the world and have great upstream habitat and, and really nice streamside vegetation and spawning gravels and everything else that we want to have. We all know what those things are. But if the, if the juvenile fish don't succeed in the ocean, it really doesn't do any good. What are your, what is the, is there kind of a current theory out there that um, you mentioned climate change and ocean temperatures? What's, what's your organization's kind of current thinking on that? Sure. Two, two things I want to say about that. One is that um, there's an organization called the North Pacific Anadromous Fish Commission, and I am a member of the U.S. delegation. I'm an advisor to that group, and they w work on issues related to salmon in the open ocean, and they just completed a large ocean expedition in 2022 where they are looking at salmon, what causes salmon to succeed or fail in the open ocean. We've never had the kind of scientific tools that we have now. And so they're, look, they're trying to answer that question. Um, but you know, when you have something like the warm blob, which occurred in the North Pacific a few years ago, mm -hmm. where for multiple years, the ocean was significantly hotter than historical averages, that really, really impacted salmon populations. So sort of flipping that on, on its side, I'm not sure we have the capacity here in the Northwest to change the ocean and how salmon interact with it, which means that the things we can control, the health of our rivers, freshwater and estuarine habitat, um, <clears throat> managing predator salmon relationships are things we can control. And those are even more important when we're pushing uphill against something like climate change in the ocean. My theory for what it's worth, which is about what you pay for it, close to zero, but you really tend to notice that pinks and chums, the salmon with less complex life cycles, seem to be thriving almost to some extent, if I'm not mistaken, in these warmer conditions and a little bit of adverse conditions for the fish with more complex life cycles like coho and chinook. Is there anything to that? Is that just, is that cockamamie or are you? No, no, I think that's, that's a great observation. I mean, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a solid observation about what is an unfortunate trend. I, I think what that's saying is that um, freshwater survival is so important and freshwater habitat is so important to species like coho that stay in the river for a year, steelhead that stay in a river for two years, and chinook, which really need big, healthy, main stem rivers, um, that those species are being impacted more by, those in, by impacts to their freshwater habitat, whereas chum and, and pink, which race right out of the river after they hatch, aren't as badly affected by yeah, that. Yeah. And actually, they enter Puget Sound as a smaller fish, and so they're not as subject to um, issues related to the food web or predation. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Speaking of predation, one of the controversies out there is the pinniped uh, population and trying to get them to back off <laughs> in terms of their consumption of, of salmon, both wild and farm. Pinnipeds being, of course, you know, sea lions, seals, um, those kinds of creatures. What's the what's Long Live the King's view of that? Is that a necessary step to take? Um, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So so we just spent seven years trying to study marine survival in, in the Salish Sea. And there were two main findings. One is the food conditions seem to be changing, and that's affecting coho and chinook. Uh, but predation has increased tremendously uh, due to the increase in harbor seal population on juvenile fish. And, and steelhead are really being hammered. Mm -hmm. um, coho and chinook are less so, but, but it's still predation is pretty important, particularly up in the Strait of Georgia where there's lots of seal habitat. Um, so what do you do about that? I mean, the seals are protected under the Marine Mammal Protection Act. Their populations have increased by eightfold since that act went into place. Um, people love seals, you know, they have eyelids and they're cute and, and they're, they have a very strong public following. And, and we used to actually remove, there was a bounty on seals back in the mid 20th century. Um, I'm not sure the public has the appetite for that anymore. So we are trying to come up with other ways to address this problem that are more publicly acceptable. One of those is to identify where there are pinch points, places like the Hood Canal Bridge or the Ballard Locks, and address the issue there. Can we get the fish past the bridge faster? Uh, can we put things in, in the water there that might um, be a deterrent to the seals without you know, mortally harming them? Um, can we identify issues related to how we release fish from hatcheries? And is there a timing issue if we dump six million fish in the water all at once, is that a dinner bell? Yeah, ringing, you're ringing the, the dinner bell there. For... Or, or should we go to a more gradual release so that the, the fish have uh, more of a chance? The, the last thing I'll say about this, and this is something that people are real interested in, <clears throat> um, bigs killer whales or transient killer whales, which eat seals, they're, they're mammal predators, they're not salmon predators, are increasing their presence in the Salish Sea. I think there was something like 1,200 sightings of these transient killer whales in Puget Sound in the Strait of Georgia last year. That is a record. And they are coming here to, to eat seals and sea lions and harbor porpoises. And we are cheering for them to let's do see. that because they don't need a permit. Yeah, let's give them Starbucks gift cards. So we'll see. Tracking, <laughs> tracking what's going on with the populations of seals and the, their potential predators may be another important factor. Good news, bad news question here for you. The good news is if you draw a Venn diagram of all the organizations and groups involved in salmon recovery in Puget Sound and the Salish Sea, at the middle of that Venn diagram is a circle that says we are all invested in and want to recover salmon populations. There is a like-minded goal there, which is great. The bad news is there are 600 of those circles all forming that Venn diagram from federal agencies to state agencies, nonprofits, local groups, cities, counties. You, you know, it, I'm telling you, but I mean, it's a, it's a vast network of people and partnerships involved in this. Ultimately speaking, has that proven to be a good thing? Is it a difficult thing? Are silos coming down? Are they staying up? Give us a feel um, based on all your interactions with the or those organizations and your various roles overseeing and helping with this recovery. Is the administrative and bureaucratic piece of this, the organizational piece of this standing in the way or is it getting better? Hmm. I'll, I'll cautiously say that it's getting better. I, I, I think that there, particularly with respect to habitat restoration and recovery work, um, there are, uh, the salmon recovery system, and for lack of a better term, in Washington State, 
uh, is built around watershed groups. So watershed by watershed, like-minded folks are getting together, whether it's city and county governments, Indian tribes, environmentalists, um, managers, resource managers, are coming together and saying, what do we need in our watershed to recover salmon? Um, and then putting forward individual plans. That is great. Um, where, where we tend to be challenged is the interaction between how we manage fisheries and how we do the habitat restoration. Typically what's going on is that when there's a problem with salmon, we ratchet down on fisheries, and so fisheries always lose. For example, right now, um, Chinook fisheries off of California and Oregon are gonna be closed yep. for 2023 yep. because habitat conditions and water conditions in California are so poor. Um, what I think we need is to really assess how much work is needed, what that's gonna cost, and and have a frank conversation with society about whether we're gonna do that. Because there's sort of two ways we can do it. We can say, no, we're never gonna withdraw any more water, we're not gonna build any more buildings or any more roads, um, or we're gonna invest in restoration actions that make up for those impacts. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately in salmon recovery, we very rarely say no to things that damage salmon habitat, and we say no to the people who care about salmon by closing fisheries, and whether those are commercial fishers, um, tribal fishers or recreational fishers, they're the ones who bear the brunt of the challenge. So our organization is really into building coalitions. Like I said, the Salish Sea Marine Survival Project, which we just completed, was an international project. We had 60 different organizations. We have a NASCAR slide that we put up for folks to show how many people were involved in this. And that's really what it took because no individual, organ even though everybody knew this was a problem for over 30 years, no individual organization could put together the resources to address it because they have limited authorities. And it took nonprofit organizations in Washington and Canada to bring the people together. Yeah, yeah. The, and I was out in a couple of, I've been out with the Marine Survival Project actually, out doing some netting oh, great. and some awesome. serving and stuff. So it was, it's interesting data. I'm gonna talk about another Venn diagram and you gestured at it too when it came to um, those interested in fishing, but is at the center of this Venn diagram I'm, ex I'm describing is the word pain and everybody has got to have a circle that it is going to touch on on some pain. Um, shutting down hatcheries to save wild fish is pain. Adding water to the system for irrigators or taking it out is going to be pain. Restricting harvest is pain for tribes and commercial and sport fishermen. So there's going to be a lot of pain. I, th I, th I don't think we can avoid it to re recover salmon runs. Talk a little bit about the distribution of that pain, and is that something that... Is, needs to be negotiated? Do people need to come to their senses and understand there's gonna be pain all the way around? How do you address the pain issue? Because I think it's a big piece of salmon recovery. Yeah, that's a, that's a, good, that's a really good question and could talk about that for months. I'm sure you could. Um, the, I mean, I think I just said that, that the pain right now, if you were to, to query people, the folks who are having the biggest impacts on salmon management and recovery are people who catch them. Because uh, since, uh, for example, just in Puget Sound, the Strait of Georgia, since 1985, fisheries on Chinook have been cut back by 80%. Yeah. So, so there's only, that's a five time, that's one fifth now of what it once was. Show me where anything else we do on the landscape has been pulled back by five times. Have we removed 80% of our dams? Have we removed 80% of our roads? No. So the, the pain right, the pain threshold right now is entirely squarely on the fishing interest. Um, I, I think we also, we estimated, for example, in Puget Sound that salmon recovery over the first 10 years would require $100 million investment a year to 
keep from losing ground. In other words, if we want to, to stay tread where water. we are, to tread water, yeah. that, so the, the investment that the state and the federal government has made is about 25% of that. So I think it's remarkable the success that folks have had in salmon recovery and the, the results that we've gotten with that limited uh, investment. But I'm going to guess that not only is it $100 million, it may be much higher than that to really gain, gain ground on salmon recovery. So let's say you're playing a game of shoots and ladders and salmon recovery is that game and you know some things you do push you ahead, some things happen to you from the natural environment or human activities that push you down. Let's add climate change to that now and we're tipping the board so even keeping your pieces on the board is harder. So those estimates of $100 million a year investment needed are probably going to triple uh, or, or increase by five times as we start to layer climate change on and we have yeah. to deal with water shortages, high temperatures in rivers, high temperatures in the ocean, and it's gonna, it's gonna be complicated. In my section here, Mark, controversies, we talked about pinniped predation, the, the seals and, and the sea lions. Also here, hatchery programs and farmed salmon in Puget Sound. Yeah. Um, hatchery programs, you know, the wild fish advocates um, don't want them. Um, how, do you, how does Long Live the King view hatchery programs? And I know you could talk for an hour on that too, but hit that and also hit, is there a place for farm salmon in Puget Sound? Yeah, um, I can, the, the farm salmon uh, question is easy, so I'll take that first. I don't think there is. I think, I think that um, in water, open net, open net pen salmon farming is a terrible idea for a number of reasons and we should just stop it. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's basically <laughs> taking the pollution from the salmon farming and, and um, spreading that across the society and, and the, the, the net gain is not there from my perspective. On land salmon farming, it's great. The big problem with that is do you take the food out of the ocean that are, could be feeding other marine life to feed those fish? So those, that's, that's the main issue. But if we can get the net pens out of the water, that's a great idea. Hatcheries is much more complicated. Yeah. Uh, our organization spent 10 years working on how you can run hatcheries and have wild fish recovery at the same time. And are there things we can do uh, to improve hatchery management that will decrease the impact on wild fish? Um, much of those uh, activities have been implemented. Some of them haven't, and maybe some of the most important ones have, have not been implemented. Um, at the same time, you know, we go back to fisheries. Fisheries have been cut back very dramatically. So there's a lot of pressure to ramp up those hatcheries. And for Chinook production, there is increasing pressure to ramp up hatchery production as a food source for southern resident killer whales, yep. which really rely on West Coast Chinook salmon. Um, our thoughts are that, um, that in places that are heavily impacted by human activities and are unlikely to be rolled back, hatcheries may be the only way to meet food for southern resident killer whales, to meet federal treaty rights for tribal fishing, uh, and to meet any other fishing interests that, that exist. In river basins that are in great shape, like let's say the Elwha, which was just restored and has much of the watershed in the national park, hatcheries ultimately should not be necessary there. Maybe there, uh, there aren't any major production hatcheries on the Skagit River. So certain rivers I think we can rely on and restore natural production. In other places, I think we're gonna be relying on hatcheries. And then the trick becomes, how do we maintain those without harming the wild stocks? Yep. How do we maintain those in the face of uh, ESA, uh, Endangered Species Act, Federal Endangered Species and, Act requirements? And tribes who want to harvest. And, and, and um, like one, one last thing I want to say about that is that the hatcheries are not immune to problems with climate change as well. The Marine Survival Project indicated that the hatchery stocks were surviving in the marine environment much less well 
than wild stocks. Briefly, I see this on Twitter all the time. It's the answer to every question when it comes to salmon harvesting. Well, if we could just get the Native Americans to stop netting the rivers, everything would be fine. Is, is that a fantasy? What's, what's the answer to that, um, which is a um, re reactionary uh, response from a, a lot of the anonymous public well, on social media? Yeah, so, so, the, so I'm, I'm, I'm not sure that the, that the tribe, tribal net fisheries in rivers is, is A, the most um, problematic fishing mechanism out there for salmon, and secondly, um, I'm not sure that that is, that is why ultimately the numbers of salmon are so low. Um, what I hear from, I'm a fisherman, and what I hear from folks who fish on every side of the, every side of the, um, the industry or the practice is that there are people who don't obey the rules. And that does, that's human nature. That isn't one group or the other. And so what, if we have regulations that are laid out and people obey those, I think that is a legitimate approach. And so, so I think that the management is, is strong for tribal fisheries. I think they have an interest in not um, abusing their, their treaty rights to fish. Um, but I think that they are a very obvious uh, scapegoat Flash for point. all of the other problems because we see them in the rivers and their nets are in the rivers. Our last 45 seconds here, I wanted to make sure you had a chance to talk about this. Are you ultimately optimistic or pessimistic that we will have more than museum quality runs of salmon in the Salish Sea someday? Uh, Is this doable? Yeah, I wouldn't, be, I wouldn't be here today talking to you if I didn't think it was doable. I absolutely do, and I think I think that it's it's um, it's a matter of talking to folks and us understanding what the issues are and continuing to sort of push the envelope of our understanding. But also, you know, everybody has a role in salmon recovery. You can you can um, drive your car less. You can uh, you know recycle. You can change how you treat your lawn. Everybody everybody in the Northwest can have a positive role here, and I recommend that we all put our shoulder to it. Last five seconds. Where can they learn more? Give me. Cheap website plug. Yeah, thank you. Uh, <laughs> our website is lltk.org. Very simple. Perfect. All right, Jacques, thanks so much for coming. Thank on you so now. much for having me. I really appreciate it. Salmon and steelhead are now at the point they have to be saved. Not enhanced, not preserved, not promoted, but saved from a synergistic combination of problems that are all heading in the wrong direction, from population growth to water quality to climate change to poor ocean conditions to declining habitat both in the fresh and salt water. The bottom line, it is a mind-bending issue, and the more you know about it, the more daunting all the interlocking problems can seem. Organizations like Long Live the Kings are not intimidated, though, and are working with thousands of others to solve the salmon's problems one step at a time, and I hope before it's too late.